Greetings. I'm Duncan Hollis of Temple University Law School, uh, and this is the third of five lectures in a mini-series on treaties and international law. In my first two talks, we situated the treaty as a concept in history, functions, and sources, and then we unpacked the concept of the treaty from within, examining the treaty definition in the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and variations on its ingredients that have emerged in customary practice since. We also compared the treaty form to its competitors, including chiefly non-legally binding agreements, also known as political commitments. But in this lecture, I want to cover the processes by which treaties get made. I want to identify some of the key concepts and the relevant rules that govern treaty formation. To talk about treaty formation, however, begs the question of who can make treaties in the first place. And what are the role or roles that various international actors play in the treaty-making process? Obviously, states have a capacity to make treaties. Indeed, the Permanent Court of International Justice suggested treaty-making was a necessary attribute of state sovereignty in the case of the SS Wimbledon, a sentiment similarly expressed in VCLT Article 6. But recall from Illen's declaration discussed in my second lecture the question of who within the state that, that can bind it to a treaty. Who is authorized to consent on behalf of a state to a particular treaty or treaty set of commitments? Fortunately, Article 7 of the VCLT sets out some clear rules. It gives actual treaty-making authority to the head of state, whether it's a president or a monarch, the head of government, say a prime minister, the foreign minister, as well as certain diplomatic officials with respect to treaties directly connected to the mission in which they serve. So, for example, a head of a diplomatic mission uh, can make treaties with the state that hosts them. For others to make treaties, the VCLT suggests they must present a quote-unquote full power. And this is a document signed by one of the officials with actual authority uh, who is authorizing the bearer of the full power to sign or otherwise consent to a treaty on behalf of a state. It's worth noting that in practice, states may dispense with the need for full powers, and so as such, it really is always useful to identify and consult the relevant practices of the forum in which the treaty is being negotiated or considered. For UN practice, for example, I would recommend you consult the UN Treaty Handbook, which has detailed descriptions of the role and contents that full powers play in multilateral treaty making today. Bilaterally, the practice varies widely in terms of requiring full powers and which officials or state organs can make treaties. For example, what happens if a state's minister of trade seeks to conclude a treaty governed by international law in the name of the ministry with a counterpart ministry elsewhere? Can the Malaysian Ministry of International Trade and Industry conclude a treaty? Or what happens if a sub-national territorial unit say a province or overseas territory, seeks to do so. Can the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where I live, conclude a treaty? What about the state of Rio de Janeiro? The treaty-making capacities of such institutions are not actually addressed in the VCLT. Nonetheless, customary practice suggests that such inter-institutional treaty-making is possible, subject to three requirements. First, the treaty must be a matter within the competence of the institution seeking to conclude a treaty. 
So a finance ministry may have a capacity to enter into a treaty exchanging tax information, but presumably its competence does not extend to an agreement sharing military intelligence. Second, the institution must be authorized by the state of which it forms a part to conclude treaties within those matters where it has competence. Now, sometimes this authorization is ex ante, as in the provisions of the Austrian and German law authorizing treaty making by their respective lander uh, on certain topics. In other cases, the authorization emerges by practice. The US federal government regularly allows treaty making by government agencies, such as its Department of Defense, uh, within its respective areas of competence. In other cases, treaty making may be authorized on an ad hoc basis, as in when the United Kingdom, for example, issues instruments of entrustment for treaties involving, say, Bermuda or Jersey. Third, in addition to competence and an internal authorization, the potential negotiation partners must also accept the identity of their treaty partner. Sometimes those partners will accept a subnational entity into a treaty regime, as the United Nations did when uh, Ukraine and Belarus were allowed to join while still part of the Soviet Union. WTO member states agreeing that Hong Kong could consent to the WTO agreements is another example. In some cases, however, potential partners may reject the capacity of uh, uh, an agency or subnational entity to conclude a treaty. In the Central and Western Pacific Tuna Convention negotiations, for example, certain states declined to follow France's overseas territory, New Caledonia's, interest in joining the treaty uh, in its own name and insisted that any membership by New Caledonia be subsidiary to the French signature and consent to that treaty. Now, what legal effects follow treaty making by government agencies or subnational actors? To put it in another way, to whom does an interinstitutional treaty's legal effects apply? The province alone or the whole of the state with which it is associated? And although a few states have suggested the idea of limiting responsibility to the entity concluding the treaty, the majority of states appear to endorse the view that the state remains responsible for the performance of the obligations, even if they are assumed by one of its ministers or subnational territorial units in their own names. And that position aligns with the Articles of State Responsibility, where Article 4, Paragraph 1 provides, quote, the conduct of any state organ shall be considered an act of that state under international law, whether the organ exercises legislative, executive, judicial, or any other functions, whatever position it holds in the organization of the state, and whatever its character as an organ of the central government or of a territorial unit of the state." End quote. Now, to the extent there are diverse views on these points, states may rely on the consensual nature of, their of the international legal order to avoid them. Right? So in cases where two states hold different views of how far an interinstitutional treaty's legal liability extends, they may agree to a uniform position. States could, for example, agree to treat their institution's treaty commitments as equivalent to treaties made in the name of the state as a whole, or the two states uh, in, in question. Or states could specifically consent to having the effects of treaties concluded by such institutions uh, extend only to the institutions uh, involved. Now, there are separate questions about what, if any, legal effects we should extend where states uh, uh, or other stakeholders uh, encounter um, uh, inter institutional agreements that did not 
satisfy the three requirements that I met. More specifically, that did not, that not satisfy the requirement of internal authorization. And here I think the practice is quite diverse. Some states reject agreements done by their subnational territorial units or their institutions if they did not have appropriate authority to enter into them. In other cases, a state can opt to ratify the otherwise unauthorized agreement, as, for example, the United States and Canada did uh, in concluding the Skagit River Treaty that reflected an earlier agreement concluded between the U.S. city of Seattle and the province of British Columbia. Um, we also see that the United Kingdom, on a number of instances, has stepped in with respect to agreements that the Cayman Islands wish to conclude and has ratified them uh, under British authority. What about treaty-making capacity of actors that are not part of a state, though? What about the, you know, outside, the, what I called in the other, my second lecture, other subjects of international law? And I think, as we discussed in that uh, earlier lecture on the treaty uh, concept, international law has come to recognize treaty-making by these other subjects, most prominently international organizations. <laughs> the ICJ's reparations case marked an early affirmation of the international legal personality of IOs, of international organizations, adopting a functional approach to IO treaty making akin to our discussion of international interinstitutional treaties that we've just had. Simply put, IOs can make treaties on matters within the scope of their competencies in accordance with the organization's relevant rules or subsequent practice and where other parties are willing to enter into treaty relations with them. In other words, IOs do not have a general treaty-making capacity the way states do. The 1986 Vienna Convention affirms this approach. And at this point, I should add a quick aside that the contents of the 1986 Vienna Convention regularly mimic those of the 1969 VCLT. And so, as such, my lectures are only really going to address the 1986 treaty uh, where there are major departures from the interstate regime. But when it comes to treaty-making, uh, the limitation of treaties uh, to those uh, within the competence of the I.O. and an alignment with its relevant rules is a departure from the general treaty-making capacity of states. So I think it's worth flagging here. Um, and that really does narrow what treaties an I.O. might seek to join. I think similarly, the views of potential treaty partners can do so as well. So, you know, whatever role U.N. peacekeepers may play in international peace and security, the Geneva Conventions outlining international humanitarian law are open only to states. IOs are not permitted to join. In practice, therefore, IOs' treaty-making capacity is often limited to matters regarding their headquarters or the operation of the organization itself, with limited involvement in so-called law-making treaties, like we discussed in my first lecture. The notable exception to this rule is the European Union, assuming one thinks of it as an IO at all. Uh, the EU might describe itself, or has described itself as a supranational organization rather than a merely international one. But given its competencies and authorities in a wide range of foreign affairs topics, many multilateral treaties now include specific provisions accommodating EU participation in its own right alongside its member states. These provisions are often framed uh, under the, the heading of regional economic organizations, or regional integrated economic organizations. So it is possible if another regional uh, um, uh, economic organization besides the EU were to emerge, they too could take advantage of these multilateral treaty provisions, uh, allowing them to consent. 
These provisions also are pretty explicit in excluding an extra vote to the European Union uh, beyond its member states. So, you know, just by joining, it doesn't get to expand the, uh, the capacity that those states would other, uh, otherwise exercise if operating collectively. Now, like interinstitutional treaties between government agencies or subnational territorial units, there are questions about what's the legal effect of an IO treaty. Specifically, who's responsible for their breach? Article 26 of the 1986 VCLT affirms that the IO itself is clearly bound, but what about the member states? Is there joint and several liability? And that question, I think, goes to a fundamental issue about what an IO is. Is the international organization merely representing the states acting collectively, in which case pass-through liability might make sense? Or is it a truly autonomous and independent legal person under the law, in which case liability should stop with it? The International Law Commission's efforts to negotiate an exemption for member state liability through draft Article 36 bis did not survive the 1986 Vienna Convention negotiations, uh, although more recent work by the ILC, particularly on the draft Articles of Responsibility for International Organizations, suggests the autonomy approach remains alive and well. In any case, I think it's a mistake to limit any discussion of IOs and treaty making to just their own capacities to make treaties, because IOs actually play a much more important role in treaties than those they conclude directly. IOs regularly host treaty-making conferences by states, witness the role the United Nations serves on treaties like the Law of the Sea Convention or upcoming negotiations on a global cybercrime treaty. IOs offer a forum to collect expertise and information around relevant topics in a permanent setting that can better inform drafting and, and indeed the subsequent operation of treaty commitments. IOs expand access to states and other stakeholders to treaty processes they might otherwise not be able to participate in, uh, and they do so in ways that are more transparent and less exclusive. And for proponents of a managerial approach to international regulation, IOs perform critical functions in ensuring treaties operate effectively, with maybe the WTO being a prominent example of the promise and perils of such an approach. That said, I should make clear that not everybody has celebrated the rise of IOs in treaty making. Um, you know, for a time, it didn't seem to incentivize more treaty making overall as a way for an IO and its staff to justify their existence. Others complain that some IOs exhibit certain biases or interests of their own, which create risks of IO forum shopping. Um, you know, when it comes to a treaty negotiation, it really matters whether it's being hosted by the Council of Europe or a different venue like the United Nations. Um, you know, just as the WTO has a different approach uh, than the conferences of the parties for various multilateral environmental agreements. And so in short, I want to make clear that any understanding of treaty making must accommodate the role IOs play not just themselves as treaty makers, but the way they facilitate or organize treaty making by states. And in that respect, I should also say a word about NGOs or non-governmental organizations. Non-governmental organizations represent various interest groups, whether drawn from civil society or industry, and they've gained increasing prominence in international treaty making over the years. Their role in bilateral treaty making is a little bit less visible, but we certainly see them in most major multilateral treaty contexts. Their role, though, is usually informal rather than formal. They'll act as observers to the negotiations, 
um, they don't have a capacity to join the treaty that results. That said, depending on the relevant rules of procedure, NGOs may be, be, may be able to, to attend plenary sessions and other negotiation meetings uh, and to voice their opinions in ways that can impact the outcome. Research tends to show, though, that NGO impact uh, on negotiations is most often prominent at the time of the outset rather than in catalyzing the final treaty negotiations. So you see NGOs having more uh, impact, uh, as say the coalition to ban landmines did, on getting started the negotiations that led to the Ottawa Convention, uh, you know, setting out the treaty's overarching object and uh, purpose, for example. They tend to have less access and less influence the further along uh, the negotiations proceed when we get down to finding that last bit of overlapping consensus, as was the case, for example, in the WHO uh, Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. At the same time, it's worth emphasizing that NGOs do play a role in observing and commenting on treaties operations even after they are formed. They can call out compliance issues. They can uh, challenge the effectiveness of the existing treaty regime, uh, as various environmental NGOs have done in the climate change or endangered species contexts. And with, um, as with IOs, not all states have equal enthusiasm for NGO participation in treaty making. Um, many do celebrate the more direct representation of civil society uh, that's afforded by their participation and the expertise and attention they bring to the treaty context. But there are some who express some concerns about a democratic deficit in the sense that NGOs are free to lobby domestically on an issue uh, and then when that state fails to adopt that issue to turn to the international plane and seek the very same outcomes, uh, you know, kind of two bites at the apple problem, if you will. For others, it's a question more of accountability. You know, who does the NGO represent and how transparent is the NGO in terms of the amount and identity of support it has? Well, whatever one's view, it remains clear that NGOs, like IOs, play critical roles in the treaty space today, especially in the formation uh, and negotiation processes. Good negotiators will regularly attend to how open they'll have their negotiations be and what role to accord NGOs uh, who do participate. With that background on questions of treaty-making capacity, I'd like to turn to the process of treaty formation itself. Here I'll begin with a concrete case. In 2022, the UN Third Committee is set to host talks on potential, uh, a potential treaty negotiation for a UN Convention on Cybercrime. I'd like to ask you to take a moment to write down a list of things that the negotiators must decide in concert with these negotiations. Things like we just discussed with respect to the extent and identity of any NGO participants. But besides that, besides NGO participation, what else do you think they should decide in advance? Again, pause the video if you need to to write down your list and come back and we'll come up with some potential answers. So what issues require attention in most treaty negotiations. First and foremost is that one that's aligned with the NGO question, and that's participation. Who gets a seat at the negotiating table? In the UN context, it'll be all UN member states. But at a more general level, a state interested in negotiating a treaty must decide with whom it wants to treat, and whether to do so via a bilateral or a multilateral process. States can, like the United Nations does, leave the process open to all who are, uh, have legal personality to participate, or it can close them to afford access to certain specifically identified states. Examples of this abound in the regional contexts, 
where we see regional treaty making in the African Union or the Organization of American States, uh, where the treaties are only open to states from that designated region. It's also possible to limit participation to qualities beyond geography, right? So you could have treaties for states engaged uh, in the export of oil or of uh, the production and consumption of rubber or other commodities. Beyond participation, there's a question of institutionalization. Will the negotiations remain in that third committee uh, for cybercrime, or would they move to another international organization? The Council of Europe, for example, has already played host to a successful cybercrime convention in a regional context. Or will you establish an ad hoc process, which although rare does still occur, as was the case with the Ottawa Convention to ban landmines? Then there are, of course, what do you want the treaty to say? Treaties are like Swiss Army knives. They can perform multiple functions all through the same instrument. Normatively, they can prohibit behavior. They can require behavior. They can permit behavior. And with an eye, as we discussed in my first lecture, to you know, creating a basis of obligation or more broad-reaching ambitions to seek uh, 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 lawmaking itself. And they can do all this with various levels of precision, whether via ex-ante rules of behavior or ex-post standards, uh, or you know, in terms of synagmatic obligations between one party and each and every other party, or uh, things like obligations erga omnis, owed by each party to every other party. Treaties can even constitute new actors, such as an international organization, or a conference or meeting of the parties. Uh, you want to ask, then, you know, if that sort of issue will be on the table in any negotiation. And I should say at this point, in going over the various ways to construct treaties, that the law of treaties itself does very little to differentiate its rules for the different types of treaties we're talking about here with just two exceptions. Um, humanitarian treaties get special rules for breach, and IO treaties get special rules that can trump the VCLT rules. But that's it. Beyond the treaty's substantive rules, uh, we have to think instead about issues of enforcement or compliance, verification, dispute settlement, if any. And it's up to the parties to think about how they want to craft these, again, because there's not really any specific rules that the VCLT provides to limit that. And so ultimately, these regime design issues, if you will, are going to be resolved by negotiation. Negotiations can be in person, they can be in writing, or these days, virtually. They usually entail multiple sessions. They can be over years or days or hours, depending on the urgency of the subject matter and the political will of the negotiators. At some point, though, people start typing or writing, and the question becomes, how do we know when we have a treaty text? In a bilateral agreement, a treaty is done when the two sites agree that it's done. There can be an informal agreement, or in more formal cases, negotiators may initial the text, although there's little legal consequences of doing so. In plurilateral or multilateral contexts, the treaty text will usually be adopted. And the rules for adoption are laid out in VCLT Article 9, subparagraph 2, which supports a two-thirds majority of participants as the number needed to adopt a treaty. In practice, however, the deviations from this threshold are, are okay, especially if the I.O. allows the negotiations to adopt a text according to different rules. Indeed, VCLT Article 5 specifically provides that the VCLT terms are without prejudice to the relevant rules of an international organization. So, as such, adoption may more often be done pursuant to the I.O.'s own rules or by consensus. 
In multilateral treaties, the authentication of the treaty will often be treated as a separate step. An authentication is the point at which the definitive text of the treaty is established as correct and authentic. And this will include all the different language versions if the treaty is concluded in multiple languages. According to VCLT Article 10, authentication will occur as provided for in the treaty text or as agreed upon by the states who participate in drawing it up. Absent that, it can happen on signature or initialing by participating states uh, via the treaty text or initialing of the final act. Um, the precise processes for authentication will vary according to the rules and practices of the entity hosting the negotiation, just as they do with adoption. Here I'd refer you um, uh, to VCLT Articles 76 to 80 and the UN Handbook titled The Summary of Practice of the Secretary General uh, as Depository of Multilateral Treaties for further discussion of this topic and particularly the use of depositaries in multilateral treaties as the entity that will engage in the authentication of the treaty text and, and maybe, hopefully not, if there is a need to correct uh, a previously authenticated treaty text, that will be the depository's duty to effectuate. Now, in addition to the treaty text, it's important to recognize that negotiations may also produce either doc other documents, contemporaneous agreements that, as we'll discuss in my final lecture, may have interpretive value. Um, and we'll also often see what's called the final act uh, of the negotiating conference. The final act is a formal record of the conference proceedings. Uh, it contains statements about the conference's purpose, who did what, who said what, um, and it represents part of the treaty's so-called travel preparatoire, or legislative history, and can have interpretive significance. Again, something we'll discuss in my final lecture in this series. Now, let's get back to our hypothetical UN Cybercrime Convention negotiation. Let's say over 100 states actually successfully negotiate and adopt a text of a UN Convention on Cybercrime. It's authenticated in all the official UN languages, and it has a robust final act. Now, assume you work in a foreign ministry of one of the negotiating states, and your foreign minister comes to you and wants to know how your state can um, join this treaty on behalf of that state. More simply, how do all these steps into a binding treaty commitment uh, finally emerge into that triggering uh, condition of pacta sunt servanda applying. In other words, when will your state be bound? And here there are two steps. Your state must first consent to be bound by the convention, and second, the convention must subsequently enter into force or already be in force at the time you consent. Let's talk about consent to be bound first. Since it's a cybercrime treaty, let's say negotiating states wanted to have their consent done innovatively. They've agreed to use an encrypted uh, app, a messaging app, to express their consent uh, at the appropriate time. Can they do this? Well, if we look at VCLT Article 11, it would appear that they can. It provides that consent to be bound by a treaty can be expressed by, quote, any means, if so agreed. And this raises an important theme, um, not just for this lecture, but across all these lectures. Article 11, like many of the VCLT's provisions, is a default rule. States may alter or agree on different approaches if they so desire. Indeed, looking to the VCLT itself, 29 of its articles endorse the application of whatever the treaty provides. Nine articles authorize the parties to quote-unquote otherwise agree, and 11 articles allow the establishment of a different intention to vary the application of the rule the VCLT would otherwise provide by default. So we can then think in the VCLT uh, as evincing a very consensual 
a thesis for treaties, one where states are in the driver's seat, capable of using their mutual agreement to adjust or vary what the law of treaties might otherwise provide. That said, of course, not all the VCLT rules operate by default. We'll talk about validity rules in my next lecture where derogation is not available. Um, and we'll also see an emphasis on treaty continuity, particularly when we get to the issue of treaty exit and how treaty withdrawal or the suspension or termination of treaty obligations can occur. Still, it's true that in treaty formation terms, the VCLT favors party autonomy and the freedom of states to divide their own ground rules. So I'd invite you to reflect on this a little bit more, especially when you think about the miniseries as a whole. You know, does the VCLT appropriately balance the interest in giving parties freedom to contract with the need to have the operation uh, of law um, constraining unwanted processes or products in treaty contexts? Is the balance the right one, or does it need some adjustment in your mind? But let's assume for now our negotiating states are not going to be innovative. They're not going to reset the balance um, and their consent. So what are the standard ways a treaty provides for consent to be bound? Here, VCLT Article 11 designates several other available means for consent besides whatever the parties agree to. Signature itself, which we call definitive signature. Exchange of instruments, like diplomatic notes. Ratification, acceptance, or approval, which are usually preceded by a state signature, which we often will call simple signature, to distinguish it from the definitive signature category I just mentioned. And finally, accession, joining a treaty that you never signed. For bilateral treaties, signature is often enough to constitute consent. But for major multilateral treaties, like the Law of the Sea Convention, the Rome Statute on the International Criminal Court, or the Paris Agreement, the usual course is for states to sign and follow up with ratification. Now, how will you know which options are available? It's going to almost always be delimited in the treaty text in what are known as its so-called final clauses. Treaties regularly include an article on how states, or other subjects of international law, like IOs or others, can quote-unquote consent to be bound. Let's walk through each of these options just in a little more detail. So signature, or definitive signature, is most often going to be specified as something that's available by the treaty text. Um, and definitive signature in the bilateral context may fulfill not only consent to be bound, but simultaneously bring the treaty into force. For multilateral treaties, though, it's important that just because some states may do definitive signature and have their signature be their consent to be bound, um, doesn't mean all have to. Treaties can provide, and often do provide, a menu of potential options for consenting to be bound, so different states can consent to be bound by different means. In terms of the exchange of instruments, it's the latter instrument that creates the treaty, and <clears throat> this is traditionally done via an exchange of notes. The standard approach is the first note makes a proposal for some sort of an agreement, an offer, if you will, and the second note repeats the first note and accepts the offer therein, and then indicates thereafter that the state's acceptance combined with the earlier note together forms an agreement between the two um, that will be concluded uh, uh, either with uh, an entry into force as the date of the second note or at some uh, later purpose or some later date as devised. Then there's ratification. In these cases, there is a signature, but the signature doesn't create any treaty obligations for the signing states. It's more simple than that. It just indicates an intent to pursue consent, right? To com pursue the completion of any necessary domestic procedures. And it's once that approval is received, the state will then indicate its consent to be bound by exchanging or depositing an instrument of ratification, approval, or acceptance. 
I should be clear, that doesn't mean that simple signature is without legal effects. Under VCLT Article 18, a state that signs a treaty is under an obligation to refrain from acts that would defeat the treaty's object and purpose until such time as it actually consents to be bound by the treaty or makes clear its intent not to become a party. The Article 18 obligation is only infrequently raised, but it has led to some interesting declinations by states. Where ratification is a listed option, whether alone or alongside options for acceptance or approval, the treaty will also usually include an additional clause on this signature. It will spell out where and for how long the treaty is open for signature, usually a set time period, although sometimes indefinitely. Ratification itself will occur with the deposit or exchange of that instrument of ratification. Um, and as I said, they're usually when it's deposited, it's deposited with that depository. And the depository serves that important role uh, in multilateral treaty making that, again, I won't discuss, but do, do take a look at the UN Secretary General's summary of practice I mentioned earlier for further details. Now, acceptance and approval are methods equivalent to ratification process-wise. They are just terms that are used when a state's domestic procedure uh, it, you know, has a specific um, type or process for ratifications um, that aren't being followed. And so the state wants to say, well, yeah, we didn't use our domestic ratification procedure, but we will follow our acceptance with, uh, follow our signature with an acceptance or approval. It's also a vehicle for non-states uh, to join, like the European Union will accept uh, uh, treaty commitments. Finally, there's accession. And this is the vehicle for consenting to be a treaty that the state did not sign previously, whether because it didn't participate in the negotiations, or maybe it couldn't participate in the negotiations, or because the earlier government didn't agree at the time with the treaty's outcome, uh, at the time of its adoption, but a new government, say, has decided that it does want to consent to be bound. To this list of signature, exchange of instruments, ratification, acceptance, approval, and accession, the 1986 Vienna Convention uh, on the Law of Treaties Involving International Organizations adds an additional means for I.O. consent, and that is, quote-unquote, an act of formal confirmation. Um, although, as I said, many I.O.s, like the European Union, prefer to accept a treaty instead of going this route. Okay, let's talk about, uh, finally, entry into force. Uh, as I already noted, consent is only one of two steps necessary to bind a state to a treaty. International law only implicates pacta sunt servanda upon the treaty's entry into force. Treaties only bind states who have consented at that time of entry into force. Note, moreover, that where a treaty is open to additional participants, they may consent to a treaty after its entry into force. In that case, the treaty will enter into force for them individually on the date of their consent or some date thereafter, usually as specified in the treaty text. So how do we know when entry into force occurs or whether the treaty generally, uh, whether for the treaty generally or for specific parties to it? up to the negotiating states to decide. Again, the default sense of the VCLT is on display here. VCLT Article 24 provides a treaty enters into force, quote, in such manner and upon such date as it may provide or as the negotiating states may agree. As I've noted, bilateral treaties will often tend to enter into force on consent via signature or exchange of notifications. And the entry into force will be on that date of exchange or signature or some designated period of time thereafter say, 90 days. Multilateral treaties exhibit more variation. Some treaties tie entry into uh, force to the consent of a specified number of states, with entry into force occurring on the date the number 
is reached or some specified period of time after the nth state consents. It can be as few as two states, uh, <clears throat> as many as all designated states, or numbers in between like 20 states, 30 states, 50 states. Um, but entry into force does not depend only on the number of consenting states. It can also tie, we can also see entry into force tied to having certain numbers or certain types of states consent, say exporting states in a commodities treaty or nuclear states, uh, those with nuclear capacities and others. Now there are clear trade-offs in the negotiator's decision on the conditions for entry into force. So the 1949 Geneva Conventions enter into force uh, following two states' consent, uh, signaling the state's interest, I think, in getting that treaty in force as soon as possible. In contrast, the Rome Statute that set up the ICC <coughs> had a requirement of 60 states' consent before entry into force, providing a guarantee to earlier consenting states that they would only be locked into a treaty with such robust commitments when a sufficient number of other states had also signaled uh, similar consent. Now, as a quick aside, note IOs that consent to be bound are not usually counted for entry into force purposes. They're excluded because of the that you know resistance to the so-called idea of additionality. We don't want to give the IO uh, additional votes or additional powers beyond those the member states would themselves possess collectively. You can see the UN Transitional Organized Crime Convention if you want to see an example of this exclusion in action. Now, who decides whether and when the conditions for entry into force are satisfied? It's usually a function of the treaty depository, um, as designated in the treaty text, but in the absence of one, it'll be up to the parties themselves. Now, as we discussed earlier, um, entry into force doesn't equate with legal effectiveness. Certain treaty provisions, such as those on signature or consent, uh, or entry into force for that matter, those provisions have to have legal effect before the treaty enters into force. Otherwise, it wouldn't work, right? So they usually have effect from the treaty's conclusion. Um, VCLT Article 24, Paragraph 4 elaborates this. So those provisions apply from the time of the treaty's adoption, and so we can say the treaty exists once it's concluded or adopted, even if it never does come into force. Also, don't confuse the operation of a treaty's provisions with entry into, uh, its entry into force date. The law of treaties has a default principle of non-retroactivity, it's ensconced in VCLT Article 28, but it is subject to a different attention being established uh, in the treaty text or otherwise by the parties. So parties can and have applied their treaties retroactively. Um, they can also delay the effectiveness of a treaty so that the provisions don't operate uh, until some period of time after entry into force, um, whether a designated date on a calendar year basis or six months or a year thereafter. To close out, very briefly, with that discussion of consent and entry into force in hand, I want to say briefly something about provisional application. Article 23 of the Arms Trade Treaty, for example, provides as follows. Any state may at the time of signature or the deposit of instrument of its ratification, acceptance, approval, or accession, declare that it will apply provisionally Articles 6 and 7 pending the entry into force of this treaty for that state. Can states do this? According to VCLT Article 25, they can, whether the treaty so provides or the negotiating states have in some other manner, quote unquote, so agreed. Again, that default rule approach evident here. And we might imagine various reasons states would seek to provisionally apply a treaty commitment in advance of its entry into force. There might be some sort of urgent crisis. They can't wait for normal treaty formation processes to occur, which can take, you know, years, sometimes decades. Think about things like the nuclear incident at Chernobyl warranting faster treaty making. 
or treaty application, as the case may be. Or there may be a desire to begin to establish the institution a treaty will create sooner than the treaty's entry into force. The organization of the prohibition of chemical weapons, for example, having a precursor uh, organization operating. Or maybe to avoid gaps in treaty coverage, as in the case with various commodities treaties that last for a fixed duration, where the goal is to make sure there's not a period where no treaty applies on coffee or sugar or what have you. Finally, provisional application may be an available option where there's a doubt that the treaty will actually enter into force. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT, operated provisionally, for example, for decades before being superseded by the WTO, the World Trade Organization Agreements. At the same time, however, provisional application does purport to bypass the usual rules on consent and entry into force, and so it raises the questions of its consistency with some of those domestic approval procedures we've been discussing so far. Now, what does provisional application mean? Is it more like Article 18's obligation not to defeat a treaty's object and purpose, or more like entry into force itself? I think both Article 18 and provisional application apply in advance of a treaty's entry into force. What Article 18 does is a default matter, whereas provisional application depends on the party's agreement. And unlike Article 18, it actually does establish a binding application to apply all the covered provisions that are subject to provisional application. In terms of treaty form, uh, VCLT Article 25 is pretty open-ended in suggesting provisional application can apply to all signatories or having opt-in or opt-out procedures to allow for provisional application of some subset of participating states. It can be done in the treaty text, uh, as the Arms Trade Treaty does, or via a separate agreement, such as that uh, protocol and the provisional application of the GATT. It can cover the whole treaty. It can cover parts of it. And it can also be conditioned on comporting with domestic laws, whether those laws on joining a treaty <coughs> or all domestic laws, both substantive and procedural. And it was this last point that was at the root of a multi-year set of litigations involving the Yukos Oil Company and Russia's provisional application of the Energy Charter Treaty, led to a $50 billion judgment against Russia in an arbitral tribunal, a judgment that was overturned by a Hague District Court ruling illustrating just, I think, how important it is to think not just about provisional application, but the way limitations on provisional application, including with respect to adhering to domestic law, how these can operate to impact the operation of provisional application. Okay, in sum, in this third lecture, I've sought to introduce you to the who and the how questions. Who can make treaties and how can they do so? We've looked at the relevant treaty-making capacities of states, including their agencies and their other subnational territorial institutions, as well as the relevant roles of international organizations and NGOs in treaty making. We've covered the design questions that accompany the negotiation of a major multilateral treaty, as well as the basic processes for adopting, authenticating, consenting to, and bringing a treaty into force, and if the parties so desire, to apply it provisionally. In my next lecture, we're going to turn to two more treaty topics. First, we'll examine the limits the law of treaties imposes on treaty commitments by operation of law, that is, the VCLT rules on treaty validity. And then we'll turn to the capability of the law to allow more unilateral limitations on treaty making, and that is the law of reservations, as well as the understandings and declarations that sometimes states provide. So thanks for watching. I hope you join me for the fourth lecture in this mini-series.